0: All right, we're going to look at the Word of God now, so um, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1 in a little while, <laughs> we going to kind of go someplace first. So um, let me pray. It's always good to pray when you're going to look at God's Word, right? Amen. Father, we ask for your blessing as we open your Word together, as we look at the truth of Easter, and we pray for you to give us understanding, a humble heart, and... Show us yourself in the word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. amen. All right. Well, for, for me, the wonderful thing about Easter, well, there's a lot of wonderful things, but the whole celebration is what we're celebrating. The thing that's wonderful to me is how solid it is. You know what I mean by solid? It's like it's rooted in something <laughs> real. Its foundation is in actual historical events. Its The substance of it is in this world. It's not... It's not some metaphysical thing. It's not some mythological thing. It's nothing flighty about it. There's nothing embellished about it. There's nothing mystical about it. These aren't dreams somebody had or some experience on a mountaintop or anything like that. It's, uh, it, it, this is an event that many people witnessed, real people, normal people. And, it's, and it, they're witnessing a person that they saw and touched and interacted with. So... Um, it's something that changed them as well, It changed the people who witnessed it. And they were, not only did they witness it and sit, tell everybody they saw it and they touched Jesus and they heard him and they were with him, they died for telling people that. And they never said, no, I'm, I mean, if you were going to kill me, I, it didn't happen. <laughs> I mean, if it didn't happen, I would say it didn't happen, right? I mean, uh, are you giving me a choice? Death or it didn't happen? Well, and if it happened and eternal life was guaranteed in it, I'm willing to die for it. But if if I just made it up for whatever reason, there's not even really a good reason to make it up, but even if I did, people don't die for what they know is a lie. They just, they just don't do that. So um, kind of think about it. A man tortured to death, rose from the dead three days later, and by some remarkable coincidence, he was the finest human being that ever lived on the earth. Now, you know, it's hard to put those things together and say there's nothing substantive there. He was the wisest, most penetrating teacher of morality that there's ever been, that the world has ever known. And at the same time, he was the kindest, gentlest, and yet the most courageous man he was gracious to the weak, forgiving to the humble, a truth speaker to the proud and the lofty and the powerful, and a servant to the poor. Somebody might ask the question sometime, I'm sure people have, if God ever became a man, what would he be like? I can't even imagine, I can't imagine a better person than Jesus. Jesus. I can't imagine him being any different than Jesus. I can't imagine an improvement on Jesus. Okay, there's Jesus, the most wonderful, brilliant man that ever lived, the most kind person ever lived, the truth teller, all of that. Let's make up someone better. (laughs) Has anybody tried in 2000 years? Who would it be? Even if he was fictional, who would it be? Who's come up with something better? And while the humility of Jesus and the gentleness of Jesus might be a surprise, in other words, if you said, if God became man, what would he be like? I don't think those are the qualities most people would have come up with. But he had those qualities in spades, as they say. I mean, totally to the max. Now that he's revealed God that way, that God is gentle, and Jesus was humble to serve us, our response to him is even greater in, in realm of wonder and joy that he's also like that. I'd expect God to tell us the truth and be real and be firm and direct our ways and um, maybe be forgiving and all of that, but, but the humility and the, the humbleness and the tenderness of Christ, not giving up any of that other stuff, it just makes it all the more incredible. I am thankful for the wisdom of Jesus, the gentleness of Jesus, the servanthood of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, and the clarity of that teaching. Mm-hmm. But let me tell you something else if if a human being invented, let's say they invented somebody, a savior like him, such a gentle savior, somewhere, if somebody if somebody said, "Well, you know, we don't want to affirm God, he should be gentle. If somebody was making up that gentle God, I guarantee you, somewhere, we would find an invented Savior, a made-up Savior, a fictional Savior. He will somewhere be less holy, less sure about righteousness, less direct about sin in some meaningful way. A made-up one would be like that. In Jesus, there is no compromise whatsoever, not in his personal life, And not in in his expectations of what we should do and the kind of people we should be. Zero compromise. Did he have a soft heart? Yeah. Yeah. And you see that. But at the same time, and in the same man, you have this consuming purity and truthfulness. And he lets nobody off the hook. He never winks at evil. He never smiles at anything unholy in any way, shape, or form. His heart is pure. His words are pure. His life was pure. He was never tempted to lower God's standard because of his gentleness and kindness, ever. He elevated God's standard, and he bids us keep it. He was was never tempted to lower God's standard. He said, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's what he said. When I hear somebody, anybody claim to speak for Jesus that does not believe what he said there in the Sermon on the Mount, I know that that person doesn't know Jesus. Jesus was the perfect man, the most perfectly balanced personality ever known in this world, full of love and compassion, selfless, yet never lowering the standard to the tiniest degree. And we know, we almost, we almost define love in our culture as letting things slide. Isn't that right? We just kind of let things slide. We indulge the little naughty things, and we excuse human frailty as just frailty. He never did that. He never did that. He kept love and holiness perfectly balanced in his heart, which no one else has ever done before or since. So they killed him. That's why they killed him. I think they had to kill him. It was either worship him or kill him. Those are kind of the two choices. And human nature being what it was determined that killing him was the best option by far. Even that wasn't a surprise. He he said it was going to happen, actually, many times. Matthew 28 18, he said to the disciples, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. He predicted it, he sought it, he said it was the Father's plan. And he gave himself to it. John 10, 17. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. So he sought that death. So Jesus came to reveal God to man. But that's not the only reason he came. We needed much more than that. We needed much more than that. So he came to die. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, he said, but to to give his life a ransom for many. So a ransom, that means it was a purposeful death. He's achieving something through that death. He's buying something with it. He's paying for something. Now we know what that was. Maybe you could best sum it up in the words of his cousin, John. John the... He wasn't a Methodist. He was a Baptist. (laughs) I'm just joking. That's why people call him John the Baptizer sometimes because they don't want to call him a Baptist. But when he saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why he gave his life as a ransom. It was a life of sacrifice for sin, for our sin, The Bible plainly says the wages of sin is death. So death is what sin earns. Death is the payment. That's the payout for our behavior, the wage, if you will. And in the Old Testament, this spotless Passover lamb saved those who were under its blood. Y'all watched the Ten Commandments on ABC this week? So painting the blood over the door. That was that perfect picture of salvation by a death, by blood. And John calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is the connection that he's making. So the Lamb's death pictures a substitution dying in the place of somebody else. Now that was just a picture of the Lamb, but Jesus is the real thing. Forsaken on the cross, as sinners deserve to be forsaken, dying there the way sinners deserve to die. Jesus truly pays the penalty of a convicted sinner a guilty sinner so the bible says when we're joined to christ by faith when we confess our sins and humbly submit ourselves to him and our our sin actually becomes his and he took it to the cross and his righteousness becomes ours he gives us his righteousness so you and i we we i gotta tell you something it's a secret you have a righteousness deficit (laughs) It's true. It's really true. You have a righteousness deficit. God requires that to live with him, to go to heaven, to be with God, you've got to be righteous. And none of us are. None of us are. That's a huge problem. Because we've sinned thousands of times, probably more than that. We're not even close to being righteous. We're not even kind of righteous. Our account is empty. So how can I be right with God? Well, the only way, since we are not righteous, is for righteousness to be given to us from outside of ourselves. And that's what the cross of Jesus is all about. You know what it means to be credited with righteous? That's what the Bible actually says. Paul in Romans uses that language, credited to us. In fact, it's in Genesis. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's pretty interesting. If you buy something with a credit card, you know, and then for whatever reason you return it, that happens in our house all the time. <laughs> they credit it to your account, right? They add the money back in like it was never gone. Now with righteousness, we never had it to begin with. Our account was empty. We didn't buy anything. We didn't have anything to buy it with so how can it be credited to me? It's a gift. It's a gift. It's a free gift from God. Why would God do that? The Bible only gives one reason, quote, because of the great love with which he loved us. That's what the Bible says. That's why he freely gave it to us. So I think we often associate great love with the willingness to make sacrifices for other people. That's almost how you define a great love, right? Well, nobody ever made a sacrifice like Jesus did. Not just choosing a horrible death on the cross, but literally bearing the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. No one ever made a sacrifice like Jesus but why does he have to suffer? I've, I've, I've had conversations with people who would say, why doesn't God just forgive us and skip all this suffering stuff? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but mainly I guess it's that God is just. God is just. What would you say about a judge? Be honest. Everyone who comes before him, he just forgives them. Thief. Please don't do it again, you're free. (laughs) Child abuser, you know, that was very naughty, but we're going to let you go. Murderer, uh, you know, just on and on. What kind of a judge would that be? Would that be a good, would you say that is a good man? He's so generous. That is a good man, that judge. No, I think anybody with a sense of justice would say no. No, he's not a good man. And God is the judge of all rational creatures. And by taking the penalty on himself, he satisfies the demands of his moral law. So justice requires satisfaction, or it really isn't justice anymore. That way, he affirms the standard of righteousness that is required. He's saying it matters, righteousness. It matters. These are real standards. They're not arbitrary. I didn't make them up. Mere forgiveness without payment would say the moral standard is not important. And how does a good God say that? I mean, uh, he wouldn't. Men are eager to say that. It doesn't really matter. But God is passionate about justice and what's right and wrong. So he could not say that. We want him to say that maybe, but he's not like that. So by the cross, God silences any voices that would say he's not good or just. He's so just, he gave himself to endure the penalty so that he could set us free. That's the gospel right there. Remember how we talked about how Jesus kept love and holiness like in this perfect balance? He was all loving but never compromised. Remember how we talked about that? Never forsaking one for the other. We see a similar balance in the cross of Jesus as he dies for our sins making a payment for our sins. Jesus in his life was perfect in love and righteousness. He was gracious, but always affirming God's standard, like we said, always affirming it. So at the cross too, love, which motivates him to do it, and justice, which is the requirement of the debt being paid, they meet there on the cross. The greatest example of love in the universe is God bearing our sin himself, And the greatest honor that could be paid to justice is paying the penalty, making sure that justice is honored. So God does both at the same time. Love and justice meet at the cross. He punishes sin and saves sinner in the very same act. That's why that is the center of all things. And God designed history to be that way. So the cross of Jesus would be the center of all things. Love and justice work in perfect harmony, and in that way, the Gospel is like jesus himself, his person his personhood uncompromising and full of compassion at the same time. So I told you we'd look at Colossians chapter one. What time is it? yeah, we can, we, we can still do that um, let's find out more about Jesus from the Apostle Paul. This is really a beautiful passage of scripture, and actually in the original language in greek it it's uh it's almost poetic so um Some scholars believe it's an early Christian hymn that Paul is quoting. And if it is a hymn, then it has two stanzas, and each stanza represents the supremacy of Christ in different spheres. So in the first stanza, he's going to be supreme over creation, and the second stanza, he's supreme over the redeemed, his church. So let me read the hymn, starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. Second stanza, he's also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So let's look at that a little bit more carefully. So Paul begins with a clear statement of Christ's divinity. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. That word image, uh, it's the Greek word icon. Does that sound familiar? An icon, right? That's the same idea there. We get that word icon from that word. So when you see the man Jesus, you are seeing the invisible God in visible form. That's what he's saying there. You also see in verse 15 that Christ is called the firstborn of all creation. The word firstborn means the highest. It means he's over everything. He's supreme. Originally, of course, firstborn meant what? The firstborn. Right? So in ancient cultures, the firstborn became the head of the whole family. And... The the large share of the inheritance came to him. Most of the inheritance came to him. But he was the head of the family. He was the supreme person over the families. So over time, the word just came to mean supreme. and had nothing to do with order or anything like that. Preeminent. So it still meant firstborn is your firstborn, but it meant this other thing as well. And that's how Paul's using it here. So Christ's relationship to to creation then is as as the creator. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's over all of creation. He has creator's rights because he made everything. And that's very much the flavor of John's gospel, which we'll talk about next week, (laughs) which begins, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then after that, it says, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So God is the creator, Christ is both over creation, and he is the creator. The word was God, he is the creator. So Colossians um, 1.16 is affirming that everything that is created was created by him. For by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. That means spiritual powers as well as the material realm. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Notice it says all things. The supremacy of Christ is absolute. He's first over everything. It's complete. The complete supremacy. So Paul's language is deliberately all-encompassing. That's why he says all things, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. He's covering all the categories. There isn't anything left out there. He's over all of it. Thrones or dominions, all kinds of authority is under him, rulers, authorities. He made them all, he set them all in place, he's over all of it. And just in case someone might have the tiniest thought that Christ in some way is less than the eternal God, the eternal self-existing God, he hits us again in verse 17. He is before what? All things, before all things. He can't be a part of creation if he's before it kind of a logical thought there. So Paul's whole point here is that Christ is the highest being in existence. Therefore, he is sufficient for everything. There's nothing more. There's nothing higher. So when you come to Jesus, you've come to the end of your spiritual journey. You can't go any farther. He's the highest thing there is. There's nothing higher to seek beyond him. He's the source. He's the ruler of all things. One more phrase, verse 17. And in him, all things hold together. So the world itself is sustained by him. What we call the natural laws, they exist because he set them in place and he upholds them. So think about our universe. You know, we've learned so much more about it since early times, but all the power of a billion stars and beyond Jesus holds all of that together. He orders it. There really aren't words that human beings have to describe his power and his sovereignty. Paul's phrase, it's so simple. In him, all things hold together. All things. All of it. It all holds together. You know, probably one of the most interesting modern arguments for God's existence is uh, on the science side of things, is the realization that, which is pretty recent, it's within the last hmm, 50, 60 years, 100 years at the most, starting to notice this, and now it's being really proven that our, the laws of nature are what are called finely tuned finely tuned if they were just a little bit different the entire universe would fall apart or it couldn't exist is what the idea is um, very finely tuned and that's true in a lot of different ways but if you just take the four fundamental laws of nature which is gravity electromagnetism something called the strong nuclear force and the other thing is the weak nuclear force little little puny nuclear force but um there's those those four things kind of run everything it's what brings things together and makes things hold together, right? All of that. It's just right. It's just right for life to exist in the universe. And most things are held together by electromagnetism. There's a certain attraction that goes on between particles and all that kind of stuff. Until, it's electromagnetism until you go in the tiniest thing that there is, an atom. And you go inside the atom and you get inside the nucleus and there electromagnetism doesn't work. You have to have something else holding it together. That's called the strong nuclear force. They got to get a better name for that, that's so boring. But um, that's what they call it. That's what science calls it. And once you get in the nucleus, you see an incredible power to hold protons together. Now you know, you remember your high school math or, or science class, you know? Protons are positively charged, right? Now if you take magnets and take the positive end and try to stick them together, what do they do? Yeah, they want to pull a push apart, right? They don't want to go together. That's that's why that's how they make those uh, uh, those electromagnetic trains run over over in the air, right? Magnets are holding them apart. <laughs> two or more protons in the nucleus of an atom, if there's two, what are they trying to do? Push themselves apart. Because they're both positively charged, right? That's what it goes. So I mean, really fly apart. In fact, if something didn't hold them apart uh, together, if something wasn't pressing them together, Science says they would fly apart at 8,000 miles a second. It would just, you know. I don't want to be near that person. (laughs) So these protons are the inside of the nucleus of an atom, and regular forces won't hold them together because it's not strong enough. So there's something called the strong nuclear force. And here's where fine-tuning comes in. If the strong nuclear force that we can measure, was just 2% weaker, every atom in the universe would fly apart. Except for hydrogen, because there's only one proton in that, right? But if the strong nuclear force were 2% stronger, all the hydrogen would be forced to become helium. And there would be no hydrogen, so there could be no life without that. So that's we're talking about fine tuning right now. That's, that's our subject. And this is one of our, the aspects of this, just one of them, but it's, one, it's a key one. So Stephen Hawking, who's a famous scientist, you know, remember him? Uh, he passed away finally, but a uh, very strong atheist. But he wrote this, the laws of nature form a system that is extremely fine-tuned and very little in physical law can be altered without destroying the possibility of the development of life as we know it. Were it not for a series of startling coincidences in the precise details of physical law, it seems humans and similar life forms would never have come into being. And nobody knows why our universe happens to have these finely tuned qualities and these forces at these exact frequencies and natures and just the right size, you know. Nobody knows why that is. It's just true. But I read the Bible, and in verse 17 of Colossians, chapter 1, it says, he holds all things together. So he created that unimaginable power. Christ holds the entire universe together. Now that would just be sort of interesting. You know, okay, so there probably is some kind of God or power out there. If it wasn't for the second stanza of Paul's hymn, and that's in verse 18. So he's the head over creation. He's over all of that. He's also the head of the body, the church. He's the He is the beginning and the firstborn, there's that word again, from the dead. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So he's not only over creation, he's over a realm which is much, much more important to us. And that is the realm of redemption. So the church is the community of the redeemed. And all the people saved by God's grace make up. This community, a people so closely connected by spiritual bonds that the New Testament repeatedly calls the church the body of Christ, the body of Christ. It's an organic union of diverse parts. You are a hand or a foot or a thumb or an ear or whatever. You're a part of the body of Christ. And and all sinners reconciled to God by one Savior become part of this Organic unity. So Christ is the head of the church. That's right. He died for her. He created her to be the expression of his love to the world. So first and foremost, this love for one another is manifest in spiritual union and a common faith and mutual encouragement. That's why church is important. That's why I'm so pleased that you came today. (laughs) (laughs) Let me tell you something about China real quick. Because most of you know I I was there for a a time some years ago teaching underground pastors in a very illegal thing that was going on there. But um, I felt really small as a human being to be in the same room with Chinese Christians meeting secretly. Men and women literally... I mean, if we got caught, I would be expelled. They would go to prison. That's the difference. They literally risk everything they have, their liberty, their jobs, their homes, to come to church. The Chinese government does not care if you're a Christian. They really don't care. You can be a Christian in China, they don't care. But if you meet in a church that is not state approved and teaching communist doctrine, along with whatever else Christianity teaches, you'll go to prison. And they risk everything to gather in worship to hear the pure word of God and praise Christ together and serve each other. They risk everything to do that because they know what the church means to Christ. So these are not just, these are not superheroes. These are common people, regular people with the same kind of weird problems you and I have. All sorts of things. Risking everything to be present in the body of Christ, knowing that each part, every hand, every foot, every eye, every thumb is needed for the body to function as it should. And Christ, who created all things and sustains all things, who holds the very elements together, he's also the head of the church. And it's precious to him. And so it is to be precious to us as well. So watch Paul use the word firstborn again in verse 18. He's also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. So Christ was not the first person to ever come back from the dead as a miraculous event. People were raised from the dead in the Old Testament. Jesus himself raised people from the dead. But he is supreme over all of them because it was his power that raised them. And his resurrection, of course, is the first body to be raised in glory. So that's significant. His resurrection broke the power of death because he did pay for sin, which is the strength, the power of sin is, um, the power of death is sin. That's what it is. And he solved that problem. So he broke death with his resurrection. So his resurrection was the first to be, the first body raised in glory. It was his own power. It was his own power that defeated death. He raised himself from the dead. So verse 18, says, this is a purpose clause in verse 18. Whenever you see so that, at least in the New American Standard Bible, I don't know what your Bible says. Whenever you see a so that, it means there's a purpose at at work here. He's the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So there's no realm over which he's not first. So the salvation of sinners is his great purpose. Work. It says, greater work and a more important work even than creating everything. But he's over it just as much as he is over creation. Now, let me go all Easter on you, since it's that day. What we call Easter is honoring and celebrating the second great work we're talking about here, the second stanza of the hymn redemption by the death and resurrection of Jesus. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, it says, He abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So all who belong to Jesus now know that they have life and immortality in Christ. Look at verse 19 of Colossians 1. Here's the power of the cross. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So in verse 19, the father determined that the fullness should dwell in him. Well, what fullness is that? All the fullness should dwell in him. What would that be? It's great that he has the fullness. What's the fullness? Well, that's actually in chapter two of Colossians, verse nine, where Paul says, in him, in Christ, All the fullness of deity, that's godness, godhood. All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He is all that God is. The Son of God is God. He's God the Son. He is in every way God, fully God and fully man. That is the wonder of Jesus Christ. That's the amazing thing about him. And that echoes verse 15 where it says he is the image of the invisible God. He's God in person, made flesh. So God determined, verse 19 says, with pleasure for God the Son to become human. And then verse 20, to reconcile all things to himself. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So let's just get back to basics real quick. The world, mankind, And the universe are not okay. It's not right. Man rebelled and creation was cursed by God because of the rebellion of man. Jesus came to make right everything. To restore the creation and to redeem human beings. The big problem is us, the rebels. In the universe. It was God's pleasure, it was his delight to send his son to suffer and shed his blood to achieve reconciliation for sinners like us. He did that so we could come back, so we could return to God freely and know the love of God again for ourselves. When Paul talks about God's pleasure here, he's recalling the words of the ancient prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53, verse 10. The Lord was pleased to crush him, talking about the Messiah, putting him to grief if he would render himself a guilt offering. And the Son of God did do that. It's the same person who created the world, who sustains the world. That person died on the cross, on a hill called Calvary, about 2,000 years ago. And after three days, on a Sunday morning, he rose in glory, in victory, and appeared to many, many people in the flesh. You see the wisdom of God here to just make all things right? The father's love reconciles the church. The father's justice is satisfied in the death of his son. The son is glorified and honored as he should be in all things because salvation was his work from beginning to end. He accomplished it. The son created the universe to his glory and the son redeems sinners to his glory. And God has a purpose in everything he's doing. He made a good world, he made us, we went against him, he still loves us, he became one of us as a man named Jesus, a perfect man who never had an evil thought cross his mind, never harmed a neighbor, never used anybody, never hated anybody, never took advantage of anybody, never lied, led a sinless life. He lived the life we were created to live but blew it. We blew it. He was perfect, and he took that perfect life and laid it down as a sacrifice for us. He died in our place and broke the power of death, and in him we are forgiven and given the gift of eternal life. So, celebrate Easter (laughs) with all of this in mind. Give glory to where it's due, to Christ, our Creator and Redeemer, And you have to have him as first in your heart as well. He needs to be at first place there. That's the only fitting response to who he is and what he's done. Let's pray. Lord God, it's our joy, our privilege today to delight in your son, Jesus, our risen savior. He it is who made us and redeems us. Draw our unworthy hearts to him so that we may find life and rest in our souls in his grace and mercy. Let us who believe remember that our future is secure and that the price has been paid for us and it will keep us forever in your love, Lord. We give you glory and praise as only you deserve. In his name we pray, amen.